Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a yearly podcast series that features leading scholars and experts discussing some of New York City's most important historic places and institutions. I'm your host, Peter Christian-Eigner, director of the Gotham Center for New York City History, which produces the show each fall for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Eric J. Dolan talks about the National Lighthouse Museum in St. George, near the Staten Island Ferry Terminal. Opened in 2015, the museum collects and preserves objects related to the history of lighthouses throughout the United States, and educates the public on the vital role these watchtowers served in navigating ships along dangerous coastlines and into potentially treacherous harbors. It is entirely fitting that New York should be home to such an institution. The city's deep water port decisively shaped its destiny with more than a dozen lighthouses providing safe passage around its shoals at one time. Here, Dolan, the author of several prize-winning maritime histories, including Brilliant Beacons, The History of the American Lighthouse, goes beyond the buildings themselves to discuss a few of the men and women behind these spectacular coastal sentinels. To hear the rest of this series, visit us at gothamcenter.org or find us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. For more than 300 years, lighthouses have illuminated America's shores. They have performed spectacularly well, protecting mariners as well as the passengers and cargoes traveling on their ships. The success and growth of the American economy could not have been achieved without the help of these brilliant beacons. They are truly national treasures worthy of awe and admiration. The Robins Reef and the Coney Island lighthouses, along with a handful of other beacons in and around New York City, played an exceptionally important role over the centuries, helping ships from every corner of the globe safely enter and exit the harbor and maneuver the Hudson and East Rivers. That navigational assist was critical to the evolution of the Port of New York, from its origins and colonial days to its current status as one of the world's busiest and most important entrepots. A few of these lighthouses remain operational today, performing their life-saving duties, while others have been retired yet still serve as historic sites. A wonderful way to gain insights into the fascinating history of America's lighthouses is to visit New York's very own National Lighthouse Museum, located on the grounds of the former United States Lighthouse Service Super Depot on the north end of Staten Island. Opened in August 2015, one of the museum's primary goals is to collect, preserve, and interpret objects related to the history and technology of lighthouses located in the past or present at sites throughout the United States. While the history of lighthouses encompasses a great variety of topics, including innovations in lighting technology and lighthouse design, The role of lighthouses during times of war and the devastating impact of hurricanes on these noble coastal sentinels, at its core, the history of America's lighthouses is about people. Undoubtedly, the most important actors are the male and female keepers who, often with the invaluable assistance of their families, faithfully kept the lights shining and the fog signals blaring. The National Lighthouse Museum profiles a few of these keepers, including Catherine Walker, who moved into Robbins Reef Lighthouse in 1885 along with her husband, John, who was the keeper. A 48-foot-tall iron casson tower completely surrounded by water, Robbins Reef Lighthouse was built in 1883 and is located on the west side of New York Harbor, about a mile north of Staten Island. The lighthouse's fourth-order Fresnel lens, which flashed every six seconds, warned ships of the submerged reef 
as it guided them into and out of the harbor. Laying eyes on her new home, Kate Walker was crestfallen. As she later recalled, the day we came to Robin's Reef, I said, I won't stay. The sight of water, whichever way I look, makes me lonesome and blue. I refused to unpack my trunks and boxes at first. I unpacked them a little at a time. After a while, they were all unpacked and I stayed on. Her life was upended again in 1890 when John caught pneumonia. As he was being taken away from the lighthouse to the mainland for treatment, he turned back to his wife and uttered the last words he would ever say to her. Mind the light, Katie. He died 10 days later. With two children to care for, Kate applied to be keeper, but the lighthouse board initially rejected her, fearing that she was too diminutive for the job, standing just four feet 10 and weighing barely 100 pounds. After several men turned down the position, the board relented and Kate was appointed. She proved to be every bit as capable as any other keeper, remaining at her post and performing admirably until retiring at the age of 73 in 1919. And for much of that time, her son Jacob served as assistant keeper. Kate grew to love the lighthouse. I am happy as any queen in her castle, she said. I am happy because I have no time to worry. For me, it is work, work, work. The lights must never fail. The glass never grow dim. Next to work, service to others is the secret of my happiness. My work helps speed safely on their voyages thousands of ships from all of the seven seas. A tiny oasis, the lighthouse was the only place she felt truly comfortable and safe, her lone outpost of sanity just outside the madness of urban life in New York, the nation's largest city. Her occasional forays into the city for business terrified her. I am in fear from the time I leave the ferry boat, she told an interviewer in 1918. The streetcars bewilder me, and I'm afraid of automobiles. A fortune wouldn't tempt me to get into one of those things. Happily for local boaters, Kate had no fear of getting into the lighthouse boat and aiding those in distress. According to her own estimate, she rescued about 50 people, mostly fishermen, whose boats foundered on the reef in bad weather. It has surprised me how lightly the men and women I've rescued seem to value their lives, Kate told a newspaper reporter. Only three or four ever knelt down and thanked God for their deliverance from death. Usually, they joke and laugh about it. Often they say, please don't tell anyone of this. They're ashamed of having mishandled their boats. Even more disappointing to Kate was that these people showed little gratitude for her heroic actions. In fact, she said, the only manifestly grateful creature I ever saved was a dog. One freezing winter's day, with the wind howling and the waves pounding the lighthouse, Kate watched as a three-masted schooner plowed into the reef and turned on its beam ends. She immediately lowered the lighthouse dory, rowed to the stricken vessel, and helped the five stranded sailors climb on board. One of the men cried, where's Scotty? And through the din, a dog's whining voice was heard. A few months later, Scotty, a small, shaggy, brown dog, paddling furiously to get through the waves, made it to the dory, whereupon Kate hauled him out of the water. I'll never forget the look in his big brown eyes as he raised them to mine, she later recalled. After a lengthy battle rowing against the turbulent seas, they made it back to the lighthouse. Kate gathered Scotty in her arms, wrapping him tightly in her cloak. 
She then climbed the lighthouse ladder and brought him to the kitchen. As soon as she put Scotty down, he collapsed. So she gently set him on the cushion of her rocking chair, covered him with a dry shawl, and forced down his throat some of the warm coffee she had sitting on the stove. Scotty gasped and snorted and quivered, again giving Kate that look she had seen in the boat. As for the men, she received not a word of thanks for risking her life to save theirs. They rested for an hour until the storm abated, then rowed to shore, leaving Scotty behind. For three days, Scotty never left Kate's side. And when the captain returned to claim the dog, Scotty didn't want to leave. As the captain climbed down the lighthouse ladder with the dog in his arms, Scotty looked up at Kate and whined once more. When Kate died in 1931 at the age of 83, she had apparently become something of a New York City folk hero or legend in the great metropolis already suffering from the fallout of the Depression. Her obituary in the New York Evening Post offered eloquent praise of a life well-lived, while at the same time painting an uplifting portrait of the city's own fortitude and adversity. A great city's waterfront is rich in romance, the paper said. There are queenly liners, the grim battlecraft, the countless carriers of commerce that pass an endless procession. And amid all this, and in sight of the city of towers and torch of liberty, lived this sturdy little woman, proud of her work and content in it, keeping her lamp alight and her windows clean, so that New York Harbor might be safe for ships that pass in the night. It was a brave job and bravely done. In doing it, Kate Walker became a lighthouse herself, for there is inspiration and good guidance in her story. Another New York City keeper story involved Frank Schubert, who in 1989 became the last civilian lighthouse keeper in the United States, since all the rest of the operating lighthouses in the country had become automated. He tended the Coney Island Lighthouse, a 68-foot-tall cast-iron skeleton tower with an adjoining seven-room brick keeper's cottage nestled in the private residential community of Seagate, Brooklyn, at the west end of Coney Island. Schubert began his career with lighthouse service more than 50 years earlier in 1937, serving as a seaman on the lighthouse tender Tulip. After stints at another lighthouse and working on navigational aids as well as serving in World War II, he was appointed keeper at the Coney Island Lighthouse in 1960. Besides his wife Marie and his three children who were raised in the keeper's cottage, Schubert loved nothing more than tending the lighthouse and being near the ocean's salt spray. So devoted were he and his wife to the keeper's life that, when interviewed by a reporter in 1986, he confessed that they hadn't gone to see a movie since 1946 and hadn't taken a vacation for 20 years, at which point Marie piped up, gently pointing out that it had actually been 25. When the Coast Guard automated the lighthouse in 1989, it kept the 73-year-old Schubert on as keeper, even though he was more of a caretaker than a traditional keeper, since the light no longer needed continual tending. Nevertheless, Schubert did maintain the property, and every day he would climb the tower's 87 steps to check on the light and fog signal. Starting in the late 1980s and running until the early 21st century, Schubert got plentiful press coverage as the last civilian lighthouse keeper. 
On the 200th anniversary of the Lighthouse System in 1989, he was invited to meet President George H.W. Bush in the Oval Office, commenting later that the president was nuts about lighthouses. But it was Schubert's interview on National Public Radio's All Things Considered in February 2002 that made him a national celebrity. Titled The Last Lighthouse Keeper, the interview was part of a larger series meant to pay homage to jobs that were on the verge of disappearing. During the interview, Schubert said that the Coast Guard kept him around because of public relations. That's it, because we do get a lot of visitors. But if that was indeed the sole reason, his bosses must have blanched at what he said next. Visitors, 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 it drives me crazy. I've had people want to spend weekends out here. They want to pay me to put them up. They want to spend weekends just hanging around the lighthouse. I don't know why they like lighthouses. When was the last time you were on the lighthouse? To you, it's romantic. But when you see it every day, day after day, it's not romantic anymore. Unfortunately for Schubert, the situation degenerated after his decidedly frank interview. Everyone, it seemed, wanted to talk to him and see him, as if he were a rare exhibit in a zoo. His phone rang incessantly, and hordes of visitors, ranging from documentarians and reporters to lighthouse lovers and the simply curious, came by the lighthouse at all times of day. My head's going to explode, he told the reporter. I don't have anything interesting to tell. But in fact, Schubert did have plenty of stories to tell, including his being credited with rescuing 15 people over the years. Despite some crustiness, perhaps brought out late in life in the wake of all the unwanted detention, Schubert had always been a faithful public servant and a gracious host to the thousands of school kids, lighthouse buffs, and others who visited the lighthouse over the years. And after he died on December 11, 2003, at the age of 88, in the keeper's quarters he had for so long called home, he was given a fitting tribute by the region's Coast Guard commander, the Coast Guard mourns the loss of its most courageous sentry of the sea. His devotion to duty and courage are unequaled. Although Schubert was the last of the civilian keepers with ties to the lighthouse service, he was not the country's last keeper. That honor goes to the keeper at the Boston Lighthouse. Federal legislation spearheaded by the late Senator Edward Kennedy in 1989 requires the lighthouse to have a keeper to maintain its historic character and to serve as a living museum that educates the public about the essential role of lighthouses in the nation's development. And to this day, a civilian keeper employed by the Coast Guard performs this important duty. If you want to learn more about America's lighthouses, take a trip to Staten Island and visit the National Lighthouse Museum. If its wonderful exhibits enthrall you, then there is only one thing to do. Go visit a lighthouse. There are plenty to choose from, since there are roughly 300 lighthouses in the country that are operated by nonprofit groups or government agencies and are open to the public in one form or another. Not only will you see the inherent beauty of lighthouses starkly etched against the sky, but you will also understand why these brilliant beacons have indelibly woven themselves into the American fabric. The rich history of lighthouses, more than anything else, will draw you in. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of the series, available on Apple Podcasts and GothamCenter.org, where you can also learn more about the rest of our programming, 
here at the Gotham Center for New York City History. Post-production for the season was provided by Garrett Tiedemann and Gabriella Montequin for Citizen Race Car. Special thanks to Dina Ecker for help in the making of this episode, too. I'm your host and the show's producer, Peter Christian Eigner, director of the Gotham Center for New York City History at the Graduate Center City University of New York. Be safe, everyone, and enjoy Open House New York weekend.